Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast about gothic literature. Join us as we listen to spooky stories and stories that I, I, I don't... Ow. This hurts my voice. Hey, everyone. This is D.B. Spitzer. This is recorded at the KZOM Studios in Oleander, Oregon. This We're going to be going with uh, Matthew Lewis's The Monk. I'm not sure if we have anyone talking about this this month, but... This is gothic literature. This is one of those old school goth lit stories that, you know, this is gothic literature. So check it out. The Monk, uh, read by J.R. White. I can't remember who it is. I just edited this and heard it a billion times. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Radio Free Oleander, PGTTCM.com. Rate, review, subscribe, check out the podcast, and look for us online. Recording by James K. White. The Monk, A Romance, by Matthew Gregory Lewis. Chapter 3, Part 1 These are the villains whom all the travelers do fear so much. Some of them are gentlemen, such as the fury of ungoverned youth thrust from the company of awful men. Two gentlemen of Verona. The Marquise and Lorenzo proceeded to the hotel in silence. The former employed himself in calling every circumstance to his mind which related might give Lorenzo's the most favorable idea of his connection with Agnes. The latter, justly alarmed for the honor of his family, felt embarrassed by the presence of the Marquise. The adventure which he had just witnessed forbade his treating him as a friend and Antonia's interests being entrusted to his mediation, he saw the impolicy of treating him as a foe. He concluded from these reflections that profound silence would be the wisest plan, and waited with impatience for Don Ramon's explanation. They arrived at the Hotel de las Cisternas. The Marquis immediately conducted him to his apartment, and begun to express his satisfaction at finding him at Madrid. Lorenzo interrupted him. "'Excuse me, my lord,' said he, with a distant air, "'if I reply somewhat coldly to your expressions of regard. "'A sister's honor is involved in this affair. "'Till that is established, and the purport of your correspondence with Agnes cleared up, "'I cannot consider you as my friend. "'I am anxious to hear the meaning of your conduct, "'and hope that you will not delay the promised explanation.' First, give me your word that you will listen with patience and indulgence. I love my sister too well to judge her harshly, and till this moment I possess no friend so dear to me as yourself. I will also confess that your having it in your power to oblige me, in a business which I have much at heart, makes me very anxious to find you still deserving my esteem. Lorenzo, you transport me. No greater pleasure can be given me than an opportunity of serving the brother of Agnes. Convince me that I can accept your favors without dishonor, and there is no man in the world to whom I am more willing to be obliged. Probably you have already heard your sister mention the name of Alfonso d'Alvarada. Never. Though I feel for Agnes an affection truly fraternal, circumstances have prevented us from being much together. While yet a child, she was consigned to the care of her aunt, who had married a German nobleman. At his castle she remained till two years since, 
when she returned to Spain, determined upon secluding herself from the world. Good God, Lorenzo, you knew of her intention, and yet strove not to make her change it? Marquise, you wrong me. The intelligence which I received at Naples shocked me extremely, and I hastened my return to Madrid for the express purpose of preventing the sacrifice. The moment that I arrived I flew to the convent of St. Clair, in which Agnes had chosen to perform her novitiate. I requested to see my sister. Conceive my surprise when she sent me a refusal. She declared positively that, apprehending my influence over her mind, she would not trust herself in my society till the day before that on which she was to receive the veil. I supplicated the nuns, I insisted upon seeing Agnes, and hesitated not to avow my suspicions that her being kept from me was against her own inclinations. To free herself from the imputation of violence, the prioress brought me a few lines, written in my sister's well-known hand, repeating the message already delivered. All future attempts to obtain a moment's conversation with her were as fruitless as the first. She was inflexible, and I was not permitted to see her till the day preceding that on which she entered the cloister, never to quit it more. This interview took place in the presence of our principal relations. It was for the first time since her childhood that I saw her, and the scene was most affecting. She threw herself upon my bosom, kissed me, and wept bitterly. By every possible argument, by tears, by prayers, by kneeling, I strove to make her abandon her intention. I represented to her all the hardships of a religious life, painted to her imagination all the pleasures which she was going to quit, and besought her to disclose to me what occasioned her disgust to the world. At this last question she turned pale, and her tears flowed yet faster. She entreated me not to press her on that subject, that it sufficed me to know that her resolution was taken, and that a convent was the only place where she could now hope for tranquillity. She persevered in her design, and made her profession. I visited her frequently at the grate, and every moment that I passed with her made me feel more affliction at her loss. I was shortly after obliged to quit Madrid. I returned but yesterday evening, and since then have not had time to call at St. Clair's convent. Then, till I mentioned it, you never heard the name of Alfonso d'Alvarada. Pardon me. My aunt wrote me word that an adventurer so called had found means to get introduced into the castle of Lindenburg that he had insinuated himself into my sister's good graces, and that she had even consented to elope with him. However, before the plan could be executed, the cavalier discovered that the estates which he believed Agnes to possess in Hispaniola in reality belonged to me. This intelligence made him change his intention. He disappeared on the day that the elopement was to have taken place, and Agnes, in despair at his perfidy and meanness, had resolved upon seclusion in a convent. She added that, as this adventurer had given himself out to be a friend of mine, she wished to know whether I had any knowledge of him. I replied in the negative. I had then very little idea that Alfonso d'Alvarada and the Marquis de las Cisternas were one and the same person. The description given me of the first by no means tallied with what I knew of the latter. In this I easily recognized Doña Rodolfa's perfidious character. Every word of this account is stamped with marks of her malice, 
of her falsehood, of her talents for misrepresenting those whom she wishes to injure. Forgive me, Medina, for speaking so freely of your relation. The mischief which she has done me authorizes my resentment, and when you have heard my story you will be convinced that my expressions have not been too severe. He then began his narrative in the following manner. THE HISTORY OF DON RAMON, Marquis DE LAS CISTERNAS Long experience, my dear Lorenzo, has convinced me how generous is your nature. I waited not for your declaration of ignorance respecting your sister's adventures to suppose that they had been purposely concealed from you. Had they reached your knowledge, from what misfortunes should both Agnes and myself have escaped? Fate had ordained it otherwise. You were on your travels when I first became acquainted with your sister. And, as our enemies took care to conceal from her your direction, it was impossible for her to implore by letter your protection and advice. On leaving Salamanca, at which university, as I have since heard, you remained a year after I quitted it, I immediately set out upon my travels. My father supplied me liberally with money, but he insisted upon my concealing my rank and presenting myself as no more than a private gentleman. This command was issued by the counsels of his friend, the Duke of Villahermosa, a nobleman for whose abilities and knowledge of the world I have ever entertained the most profound veneration. Believe me, said he, my dear Ramon, you will hereafter feel the benefits of this temporary degradation. Tis true that, as the Conde de las Cisternas, you would have been received with open arms, and your youthful vanity might have felt gratified by the attentions showered upon you from all sides. At present, much will depend upon yourself. You have excellent recommendations, but it must be your own business to make them of use to you. You must lay yourself out to please. You must labor to gain the approbation of those to whom you are presented. They who would have courted the friendship of the Conde de las Cisternas will have no interest in finding out the merits or bearing patiently with the faults of Alfonso d'Alvarada. Consequently, when you find yourself really liked, you may safely ascribe it to your good qualities, not your rank. And the distinction shown you will be infinitely more flattering. Besides, your exalted birth would not permit your mixing with the lower classes of society, which will now be in your power, and from which, in my opinion, you will derive considerable benefit. Do not confine yourself to the illustrious of those countries through which you pass. Examine the manners and customs of the multitude. Enter into the cottages, and by observing how the vassals of foreigners are treated, learn to diminish the burthens and augment the comforts of your own. According to my ideas of those advantages which a youth destined to the possession of power and wealth may reap from travel, he should not consider as the least essential the opportunity of mixing with the classes below him, and becoming an eye-witness of the sufferings of the people. Forgive me, Lorenzo, if I seem tedious in my narration. The close connection which now exists between us makes me anxious that you should know every particular respecting me, and, in my fear of omitting the least circumstance which may induce you to think favorably of your sister and myself, I may possibly relate many which you may think uninteresting. I followed the Duke's advice. I was soon convinced of its wisdom. I quitted Spain, calling myself by the assumed title of Don Alfonso d'Alvarada, and attended by a single domestic of approved fidelity. Paris was my first station. 
For some time I was enchanted with it, as indeed must be every man who is young, rich, and fond of pleasure. Yet among all its gaieties, I felt that something was wanting to my heart. I grew sick of dissipation. I discovered that the people among whom I lived, and whose exterior was so polished and seducing, were at bottom frivolous, unfeeling, and insincere. I turned from the inhabitants of Paris with disgust, and quitted the theatre of luxury without heaving one sigh of regret. I now bent my course towards Germany, intending to visit most of the principal courts. Prior to this expedition, I meant to make some little stay at Strasbourg. On quitting my chaise at Lineville, to take some refreshment, I observed a splendid equipage, attended by four domestics in rich liveries, waiting at the door of the Silver Lion. Soon after, as I looked out of the window, I saw a lady of noble presence, followed by two female attendants, step into the carriage, which drove off immediately. I inquired of the host who the lady was that had just departed. A German baroness, monsieur, of great rank and fortune. She has been upon a visit to the Duchess of Longueville, as her servants inform me. She is going to Strasbourg, where she will find her husband, and then both return to their castle in Germany. I resume my journey, intending to reach Strasbourg that night. My hopes, however, were frustrated by the breaking down of my chaise. The accident happened in the middle of a thick forest, and I was not a little embarrassed as to the means of proceeding. It was the depth of winter. The night was already closing round us, and Strasbourg, which was the nearest town, was still distant from us several leagues. It seemed to me that my only alternative to passing the night in the forest was to take my servant's horse and ride on to Strasbourg, an undertaking at that season very far from agreeable. However, seeing no other resource, I was obliged to make up my mind to it. Accordingly, I communicated my design to the postillion, telling him that I would send people to assist him as soon as I reached Strasbourg. I had not much confidence in his honesty, but Stefano being well-armed and the driver to all appearance considerably advanced in years, I believed I ran no risk of losing my baggage. Luckily, as I then thought, an opportunity presented itself of passing the night more agreeably than I expected. On mentioning my design of proceeding by myself to Strasbourg, the postillion shook his head in disapprobation. It is a long way, said he. You will find it a difficult matter to arrive there without a guide. Besides, Monsieur seems unaccustomed to the season's severity, and tis possible that unable to sustain the excessive cold. What use is there to present me with all these objections? said I, impatiently interrupting him. I have no other resource. I run still greater risk of perishing with cold by passing the night in the forest. Passing the night in the forest? he replied. Oh, by Saint-Denis, we are not in so bad a plight as that comes to yet. If I am not mistaken, we are scarcely five minutes' walk from the cottage of my old friend Baptiste. He is a woodcutter, and a very honest fellow. I doubt not, but he will shelter you for the night with pleasure. In the meantime, I can take the saddle-horse, ride to Strasbourg, and be back with proper people to mend your carriage by break of day." "'And in the name of God,' said I, "'how could you leave me so long in suspense? "'Why did you not tell me of this cottage sooner? "'What excessive stupidity!' 
I thought that perhaps Monsieur would not deign to accept. Absurd! Come, come, say no more. But conduct us without delay to the woodman's cottage. He obeyed, and we moved onwards. The horses contrived with some difficulty to drag the shattered vehicle after us. My servant was become almost speechless, and I began to feel the effects of the cold myself before we reached the wished-for cottage. It was a small but neat building. As we drew near it, I rejoiced at observing through the window the blaze of a comfortable fire. Our conductor knocked at the door. It was some time before anyone answered. The people within seemed in doubt whether we should be admitted. "'Come, come, friend Baptiste,' cried the driver with impatience. "'What are you about? Are you asleep?' or will you refuse a night's lodging to a gentleman whose chaise has just broken down in the forest? "'Ah, is it you, honest Claude?' replied a man's voice from within. "'Wait a moment, and the door shall be opened.' Soon after, the bolts were drawn back. The door was unclosed, and a man presented himself to us with a lamp in his hand. He gave the guide a hearty reception, and then addressed himself to me. "'Walk in, monsieur.' walk in and welcome excuse me for not admitting you at first but there are so many rogues about this place that saving your presence i suspected you to be one thus saying he ushered me into the room where i had observed the fire i was immediately placed in an easy chair which stood close to the hearth a female whom i supposed to be the wife of my host rose from her seat upon my entrance and received me with a slight and distant reverence she made no answer to my compliment but immediately reseating herself continued the work on which she had been employed her husband's manners were as friendly as hers were harsh and repulsive i wish i could lodge you more conveniently monsieur said he but we cannot boast of much spare room in this hovel however a chamber for yourself and another for your servant i think we can make shift to supply you must content yourself with sorry fare but to what we have believe me you are heartily welcome then turning to his wife why how you sit there marguerite with as much tranquillity as if you had nothing better to do stir about dame stir about get some supper look out some sheets here here throw some logs upon the fire for the gentleman seems perished with cold the wife threw her work hastily upon the table and proceeded to execute his commands with every mark of unwillingness her countenance had displeased me on the first moment of my examining it, yet upon the whole her features were handsome unquestionably, but her skin was sallow, and her person thin and meagre. A luring gloom overspread her countenance, and it bore such visible marks of rancor and ill-will as could not escape being noticed by the most inattentive observer. Her every look and action expressed discontent and impatience, and the answers which she gave Baptiste when he reproached her good-humouredly for her dissatisfied air were tart, short, and cutting. In fine, I conceived at first sight equal disgust for her and prepossession in favour of her husband, whose appearance was calculated to inspire esteem and confidence. His countenance was open, sincere, and friendly. His manners had all the peasant's honesty, unaccompanied by his rudeness. His cheeks were broad, full, and ruddy, and in the solidity of his person he seemed to offer an ample apology for the leanness of his wife's. From the wrinkles on his brow I judged him to be turned of sixty, but he bore his years well, 
and seemed still hearty and strong. The wife could not be more than thirty, but in spirits and vivacity she was infinitely older than the husband. However, in spite of her unwillingness, Marguerite began to prepare the supper, while the woodman conversed gaily on different subjects. The postilion, who had been furnished with a bottle of spirits, was now ready to set out for Strasbourg, and inquired whether I had any further commands. "'For Strasbourg?' interrupted Baptiste. "'You are not going thither to-night?' "'I beg your pardon. If I do not fetch workmen to mend the chaise, how is Monsieur to proceed to-morrow?' "'That is true, as you say. I had forgotten the chaise. Well, but, Claude, you may at least eat your supper here.' That can make you lose very little time, and Monsieur looks too kind-hearted to send you out with an empty stomach on such a bitter cold night as this is. To this I readily assented, telling the postillion that my reaching Strasbourg the next day an hour or two later would be perfectly immaterial. He thanked me, and then leaving the cottage with Stefano, put up his horses in the woodman's stable. Baptiste followed them to the door and looked out with anxiety. "'Tis a sharp biting wind,' said he. "'I wonder what detains my boy so long. "'Monsieur, I shall show you two of the finest lads "'that ever stepped in shoe of leather. "'The eldest is three and twenty, the second a year younger. "'Their equals for sense, courage, and activity "'are not to be found within fifty miles of Strasbourg. "'Would they were back again. "'I begin to feel uneasy about them.' Marguerite was at this time employed in laying the cloth. "'And are you equally anxious for the return of your sons?' said I to her. "'Not I,' she replied peevishly. "'They are no children of mine.' "'Come, come, Marguerite,' said the husband. "'Do not be out of humour with the gentleman for asking a simple question. Had you not looked so cross, he would never have thought you old enough to have a son of three-and-twenty. But you see how many years ill-temper adds to you.' excuse my wife's rudeness monsieur a little thing puts her out and she is somewhat displeased at your not thinking her to be under thirty that is the truth is it not marguerite you know monsieur that age is always a ticklish subject with a woman come come marguerite clear up a little if you have not sons as old you will some twenty years hence and i hope that we shall live to see them just such lads as jacques and robert Marguerite clasped her hands together passionately. "'God forbid,' said she. "'God forbid. If I thought it, I would strangle them with my own hands.' She quitted the room hastily and went upstairs. I could not help expressing to the woodman how much I pitied him for being chained for life to a partner of such ill humour. "'Ah, Lord! Monsieur, everyone has his share of grievances, and Marguerite has fallen to mine. Besides, after all, she is only cross, and not malicious. The worst is that her affection for two children by a former husband makes her play the stepmother with my two sons. She cannot bear the sight of them, and by her good will they would never set a foot within my door. But on this point I always stand firm, and never will consent to abandon the poor lads to the world's mercy, as she has often solicited me to do. In everything else I let her have her own way." and truly she manages a family rarely. That I must say for her. We were conversing in this manner when our discourse was interrupted by a loud hello, which rang through the forest. My sons, I hope, exclaimed the woodman, 
and ran to open the door. The hello was repeated. We now distinguish the trampling of horses, and soon after a carriage attended by several cavaliers stopped at the carriage door. One of the horsemen inquired how far they were still from Strasbourg. As he addressed himself to me, I answered in the number of miles which Claude had told me, upon which a volley of curses was vented against the drivers for having lost their way. The persons in the coach were now informed of the distance of Strasbourg, and also that the horses were so fatigued as to be incapable of proceeding further. A lady, who appeared to be the principal, expressed much chagrin at this intelligence, but, as there was no remedy, one of the attendants asked the woodman whether he should furnish them with lodging for the night. He seemed much embarrassed, and replied in the negative, adding that a Spanish gentleman and his servant were already in possession of the only spare apartments in his house. On hearing this, the gallantry of my nation would not permit me to retain those accommodations of which a female was in want. I instantly signified to the woodman that I transferred my right to the lady. He made some objections, but I overruled them, and, hastening to the carriage, opened the door and assisted the lady to ascend. I immediately recognized her for the same person whom I had seen at the inn at Lineville. I took an opportunity of asking one of her attendants what was her name. The Baroness Lindenberg was the answer. I could not but remark how different a reception our host had given these newcomers and myself. His reluctance to admit them was visibly expressed on his countenance, and he prevailed on himself with difficulty to tell the lady that she was welcome. I conducted her into the house, and placed her in the armchair which I had just quitted. She thanked me very graciously, and made a thousand apologies for putting me to an inconvenience. Suddenly the woodman's countenance cleared up. "'At last I have arranged it,' said he, interrupting her excuses. "'I can lodge you and your suit, madame.' and you will not be under the necessity of making this gentleman suffer for his politeness. We have two spare chambers, one for the lady, the other, monsieur, for you. My wife shall give up hers to the two waiting women. As for the men-servants, they must content themselves with passing the night in a large barn which stands at a few yards' distance from the house. There they shall have a blazing fire, and as good a supper as we can make shift to give them." After several expressions of gratitude on the lady's part, and opposition on mine to Marguerite's giving up her bed, this arrangement was agreed to. As the room was small, the baroness immediately dismissed her male domestics. Baptiste was on the point of conducting them to the barn which he had mentioned, when two young men appeared at the door of the cottage. "'Hell and furies!' exclaimed the first, starting back. "'Robert, the house is filled with strangers.' "'Ha! There are my sons!' cried our host. "'Why, Jacques, Robert, whither are you running, boys? There is room enough still for you.' Upon this assurance the youths returned. The father presented them to the baroness and myself, after which he withdrew with our domestics, while at the request of the two waiting women, Marguerite conducted them to the room designed for their mistress. The two newcomers were tall, stout, well-made young men, hard-featured, and very much sunburnt. They paid their compliments to us in few words, and acknowledged Claude, who now entered the room as an old acquaintance. They then threw aside their cloaks in which they were wrapped up, took off a leathern belt to which a large cutlass was suspended, 
and each drawing a brace of pistols from his girdle, laid them upon a shelf. "'You travel well armed,' said I. "'True, monsieur,' replied Robert. "'We left Strasbourg late this evening, and tis necessary to take precautions at passing through this forest after dark. It does not bear a good repute, I promise you.' "'How?' said the baroness. "'Are there robbers hereabout?' "'So it is said, madame. For my own part, I have travelled through the wood at all hours, and never met with one of them.' Here Marguerite returned. Her stepsons drew her to the other end of the room, and whispered to her for some minutes. By the looks which they cast towards us at intervals, I conjectured them to be inquiring our business in the cottage. In the meanwhile, the baroness expressed her apprehension that her husband would be suffering from anxiety upon her account. She had intended to send on one of her servants to inform the baron of her delay, but the account which the young men gave of the forest rendered this plan impracticable. Claude relieved her from her embarrassment. He informed her that he was under the necessity of reaching Strasbourg that night, and that would she trust him with a letter, she might depend upon its being safely delivered. "'And how comes it,' said I, "'that you are under no apprehension of meeting these robbers?' "'Alas, monsieur, a poor man with a large family must not lose certain profit, because tis attended with a little danger, and perhaps my lord the baron may give me a trifle for my pains.' Besides, I have nothing to lose, except my life, and that will not be worth the robber's taking. I thought his arguments bad, and advised his waiting till the morning, but as the baroness did not second me, I was obliged to give up the point. The baroness Lindenberg, as I found afterwards, had long been accustomed to sacrifice the interests of others to her own, and her wish to send Claude to Strasbourg blinded her to the danger of the undertaking. Accordingly, it was resolved that he should set out without delay. The baroness wrote her letter to her husband, and I sent a few lines to my banker, apprising him that I should not be at Strasbourg till the next day. Claude took our letters, and left the cottage. The lady declared herself much fatigued by her journey. Besides having come from some distance, the drivers had contrived to lose their way in the forest. She now addressed herself to Marguerite, desiring to be shown to her chamber, and permitted to take half an hour's repose. One of the waiting-women was immediately summoned. She appeared with a light, and the baroness followed her upstairs. The cloth was spreading in the chamber where I was, and Marguerite soon gave me to understand that I was in her way. Her hints were too broad to be easily mistaken. I therefore desired one of the young men to conduct me to the chamber where I was to sleep, and where I could remain till supper was ready. "'Which chamber is it, mother?' said Robert. "'The one with green hangings,' she replied. "'I have just been at the trouble of getting it ready, and have put fresh sheets upon the bed. If the gentleman chooses to lollop and lounge upon it, he may make it again himself, for me.' "'You are out of humour, mother. But that is no novelty. Have the goodness to follow me, monsieur.' He opened the door and advanced towards a narrow staircase. "'You have got no light,' said Marguerite. "'Is it your own neck or the gentleman's that you have a mind to break?' She crossed by me, and put a candle into Robert's hand. Having received which, he began to ascend the staircase. Jacques was employed in laying the cloth, and his back was turned towards me. Marguerite seized the moment when we were unobserved. She caught my hand, and pressed it strongly. 
"'Look at the sheets,' said she as she passed me, and immediately resumed her former occupation. Startled by the abruptness of her action, I remained as if petrified. Robert's voice desiring me to follow him recalled me to myself. I ascended the staircase. My conductor ushered me into a chamber where an excellent wood-fire was blazing upon the hearth. He placed the light upon the table, inquired whether I had any further commands, and, on my replying in the negative, left me to myself. You may be certain that the moment when I found myself alone was that on which I complied with Margarit's injunction. I took the candle hastily, approached the bed, and turned down the coverture. What was my astonishment, my horror, at finding the sheets crimsoned with blood? At that moment a thousand confused ideas passed before my imagination. The robbers who infested the wood, Margarit's exclamation respecting her children, the arms and appearance of the two young men, and the various anecdotes which I had heard related respecting the secret correspondence which frequently exists between banditti and postilions, all these circumstances flashed upon my mind, and inspired me with doubt and apprehension. I ruminated on the most probable means of ascertaining the truth of my conjectures. Suddenly I was aware of someone below pacing hastily backwards and forwards. Everything now appeared to me an object of suspicion. With precaution I drew near the window, which, as the room had been long shut up, was left open in spite of the cold. I ventured to look out. The beams of the moon permitted me to distinguish a man whom I had no difficulty to recognize for my host. I watched his movements. He walked swiftly, then stopped and seemed to listen. He stamped upon the ground and beat his stomach with his arms as if to guard himself from the inclemency of the season. At the least noise, if a voice was heard in the lower part of the house, if a bat flitted past him or the wind rattled amidst the leafless boughs, he started and looked round with anxiety. "'Plague take him!' said he at length with extreme impatience. "'What can he be about?' He spoke in a low voice but as he was just below my window, I had no difficulty to distinguish his words. End of chapter 3, part 1 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista